All right, we're back here again. Uh, we have a lovely interview with Kevin Kiley, who is the in-house coordinator for MGH for um, Organ Donor Services. Hi, Kevin. Hello. Hi. All right, because of the quarantine, we're all trying to do this. Um, we've had multiple issues trying to record this interview, so hopefully we'll we'll get it right this time. Please. And I thank you for your patience, and I thank you for coming on. Thank you. Um, it's a privilege to be on. Okay, so uh, we'll go through again what you do um, as in-house coordinator, and then maybe you could touch on, um, like, brain death. And I think people get confused with brain death because when they look at somebody in a bed who's breathing and pink and warm and, you know, adorable, and it's somebody they love, they have a hard time wrapping around the fact that this is the end for them. So maybe you could um, go through that with us real quick. Of course. So... You can donate organs one of two ways, right? Deceased organ donation and living donation. Where tonight we're mm-hmm. going to talk about deceased donation. That's my role. That's my practice. I work for New England Donor Services. Mm-hmm. I'm stationed mm-hmm. at Mass General Hospital. So New England Donor Services is one of about 50 OPOs, organ procurement organizations, mm-hmm. all around the United States. These are federally designated entities, nonprofits, that operate in a particular geographic area. And our mission and work is simple and straightforward. It's to organize all aspects of organ and tissue donation and transplant with hospital partners in a designated geographic area. We okay. deploy about 200 people all around New England ah, on call all hours of the day and night responding to hospitals all over New England, a population of about 12 or 13 million, uh, supporting the, the organ and tissue donation process in all of those hospitals at all hours of the day and night. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's just a sort of a setup of who we are. And because because of our very unique existence and because the federal government confers upon us both privileges and responsibility to do this work, mm-hmm. our teams can move in and out of hospitals, confer with medical teams on very confidential and private medical records. We have access to electronic medical systems. Uh, for example, at Mass General, I'm in and out of the electronic medical records every day at the behest of the medical teams there, only when they ask us to get involved. But it allows it allows me and, and our team to do one of our primary missions, primary obligations, which is to assess and determine whether or not somebody is suitable to donate organs at the time of their death. Okay, and that's okay so tell us what... Yeah. I'm sorry, I was going to say, tell us what a suitable person for donation sure. would be. Of course. You have to be young enough and with healthy enough organs and stable enough mm-hmm. at, the, at the at the time you're in the hospital and on the ICU so mm-hmm. that the whole process and matter of organ donation can take place. And when I, that because it is a very time-sensitive thing. It is. You're yeah. exactly right. And uh, so, um, you know, a couple of things about the patients that sort of come into my orbit, if you will, in my work on a daily basis. So these are typically patients that are coming to MGH, but it could be any hospital. Right. And they would typically come into the hospital with a life-threatening injury. We hear that term all the time on the news. We know for somebody so-and-so was in a car crash with life-threatening injury. So life-threatening injuries, they're brought to, uh, to a hospital with typically a brain injury that may take their life. A brain injury from a severe stroke, mm-hmm. a brain injury from a lack of oxygen to the brain as a result of a, a drug overdose or mm-hmm. cardiac arrest. Which unfortunately we're seeing so many overdoses these days, yeah. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We yep. talk, we, and we should talk about that. Or 
and from a traumatic event, a uh, car crash, uh, violent crime, a blunt trauma, assault. This, these are injuries to the brain and head that would, you know, eventually, uh, after a period of hospitalization, essentially claim a patient's life. And so when these patients are admitted into the ICU mm-hmm. and the team begins to assess and care for them, if there is a belief that the person's life is in jeopardy, uh, they activate the organ donation service. They're required to. The federal right. government has language that governs our work together, the hospital and the OPO, mm-hmm. and we must be informed of these patients' existence in the hospitals when they're admitted. Because the whole matter of determining whether somebody can safely and viably donate organs at the time of their death is a complex process. Yes. I told you just a minute ago they have to be young enough and otherwise healthy enough with organ, good organ function and stable enough. Those assessments take time. Uh, past medical history. When you look in someone's chart and you see a, a sort of a brief synopsis of what brought them to the hospital this time, there's typically a discussion of their medical history. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's complete, sometimes it's not. So the short answer to this question is our organization has a, a, a primary obligation to thoroughly assess that patient to see if at the time of their death their family wants them to donate or they wanted to donate for themselves by having a driver's license designation to do so, we have to be sure that it is safe and viable to do so. That is not the responsibility of an ICU doctor Mm -hmm. or an ICU Mm -hmm. nurse. It is the responsibility of of my, my teammates, me, the staff that work for New England Donor Services, and the hospitals rely on us completely to answer that question. And in no way have you ever had the experience with somebody's age, ethnicity, designation on the license, or anything has altered their care for organ donation, correct? Like you don't see people, you know, you hear a common complaint of somebody saying, well, it's on my license, I'm afraid they're going to let me die. Or, you know, I'm the right age and they're going to let me die. So you... I'd like to clarify that for people. Sure. It's a good question. You know, uh, we're living in strange times right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we oh all, all, <laughs> all of us tr- turn on the news every night and we see the frantic activity in hospitals and the providers working around the clock, physicians, nurses, mm-hmm. respiratory therapists, and so many others. And I guess I would answer that question with this observation. Do you see any aspect of what's going on in these nightly newscasts that would lead you to believe that doctors or nurses want to do anything other than save lives? Not even a little bit. This is what doctors and nurses and others are trained for. Mm -hmm. This is their muscle memory. It's Mm -hmm. ingrained in the DNA of every doctor I've ever met in my life. Whether or not somebody is a registered organ donor on their license or on a donor card matters not one bit. Mm-hmm. When life-saving measures are being administered to a patient, uh, I don't think people even realize. The at all. Yeah. yeah, right. They don't even realize you don't have time half the time. If somebody no. comes in traumatically, you don't have time to look at a license or to look up to see. Oh, yeah, they're ABO, or you know, it's it's a non-issue when somebody comes in, and I, I just can't stress it enough to people. That's not their concern. Is if you're going to be an organ donor when they're trying to save your life. Mm-hmm. It's a, it is a non-issue, and I appreciate you saying that, uh, recognizing that the three of us have a different level of knowledge of the medical system and trust mm-hmm. in it 
than the very diverse population that we serve in, in urban hospitals, you know, mm-hmm. downtown right. Boston or Philadelphia, New York City. We, we serve in these hospitals a very diverse population that has a very different sometimes view and trust in the medical system mm-hmm. than we do. It is yes. our responsibility to those families and patients to help them understand what's happening in this journey of trying to save the life and the life can't be saved. And this is Kevin Kiley from the donation team. He wants to talk with you. It's our, it is completely on our teams. Mm-hmm. To, to build a level of trust with those families so that we can conduct those conversations. And I have to say, Excellent. I do the family nursing, like the, I, I usually take care of the family when we have a donation. So I go up to yeah. the ICU and meet them. And I, every time the, the people from the organ, um, service are, they're just, they know everything about this patient. They know their favorite music. They know what they like to do. They know everyone in the family in the room. Like they get to know these people so well and they take Intimately. such good care yeah. of them and they tell you everything before you even go and they, Oh, this is so and so. And, um, they'd like this music playing because he really liked that. And, you know, like they're just so caring and thoughtful. And I just, I find them, I find you and your coworkers amazing. Agreed. Sure. Agreed. Thank you for, thank you for saying that. That, That's donor family support and it's a huge and important part of our mission. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the science behind organ donation is one thing, but the human elements of the work that we do really is the, is extraordinarily rewarding. It's difficult. Um, but in the end it's, it's rewarding. And I will tell you both, I meet really good families and my colleagues meet really good families who make decisions to help other patients who are suffering. Mm-hmm. Maybe people and they're, and they're making it in a time that's the most difficult yeah. time of their life, usually. The worst possible time. And I'm going to give you a stat in a moment that will illustrate that. But, but the thing that, again, to me, and I feel like I've got one of the best jobs at Mass General, is I walk into the lives of families, and my colleagues walk into the lives of families, and they're upside down in their emotions, and they've been told that their loved one is, is dead or dying. Mm-hmm. And that they have to make these big decisions about whether they want to continue on this course of treatment and medicine and blood pressure support and, and, uh, ventilatory support. There it is. There's this, that term that we're all so familiar with now. Yes. Ventilators, mm-hmm. right? Ventilators. Yes. How many vents do we have? So, yep. <laughs> so this is a part of every discussion that our medical teams are having with the families that are in the orbit of organ donation. Do you want to continue on with the ventilator or do you want to remove it and let him go? That, that's a, that's a real, delicate point in a conversation with a family mm-hmm. to understand what they want for their loved one. But but what I what I wanted to say was this. I meet really good families. One of the best parts of my practice is meeting really good people, generous people, thoughtful people, kind people. When when we walk in, when I walk in and ask if they would donate their loved one's organs, it's a huge ask. Mm-hmm. And the on the worst day of their lives and when families say yes it just reminds me that there's a lot of good people walking amongst us that that's just first and foremost that's a personal observation yeah but i appreciate your comment earlier laura i think it was you yeah the 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 family of the donor Mm -hmm. in terms of the human element of the work that we do is extraordinarily important helping them understand this process, mm-hmm. understand the power of this decision that they are making and have just made, yeah. the number of lives 
that could potentially be impacted. And I, I want to hit the pause button here for a second to illustrate this. Mm-hmm. When a patient is declared brain dead by a neurologist and their brain is not functioning at all and a family is told that, that's mm-hmm. death. You can die one of two ways on this earth. Your heart can stop beating or your brain can stop working. It's much more common for us to die when our heart stops beating. In fact, it's mm-hmm. more than 99% of the way everybody on this planet dies. Mm-hmm. But 1% of people die from brain death. Their brain stops working. A neurologist comes in and does a thorough, meticulous assessment mm-hmm. and tells the family that their loved one is deceased and answers all the questions about that. Mm-hmm. Because in that setting, that patient is still connected to the ventilator. And the body is still eliciting the response of a heartbeat and a warm temperature and uh, what would would appear to be respiration, but we know it's not because they're reliant on the vent. And all we're seeing is is what the machine, the ventilator, is doing for the patient. The reason I say that is when a patient, when a family agrees to donate their loved one's organs and they are brain dead, Mm -hmm. it is possible for that person to save eight lives. Yes. And I'm just going to list them for you because I, every time I, I say this, I check myself and I, I have to remind myself, this is real. Mm-hmm. Yes. This, this happens. One donor can donate a heart, two lungs, and they very often go one, one each to two different patients, mm-hmm. liver, pancreas, two kidneys, and the small intestine actually is considered a vascularized organ for transplant. Mm-hmm. Yes. So when you start talking with a family in a family meeting about the number of lives that could potentially be impacted and all those families and everything that, that goes with that, our donor families begin to realize that really the power of, of what is about to happen. Right. And it becomes a source of hope and comfort mm-hmm. in their loss. I will tell you that um, it's one of the great privileges of my practice and my work to sit with families that are making this decision to help them understand what we're talking about. And when they decide to do it, they begin to uh, gain hope that, oh, you know, dad's heart is going to save a life and dad's kidneys are going to save somebody, get them off the transplant waiting list. And invariably in those conversations, those intimate conversations that take place, you know, either in a, in, a, in a meeting room on the ICU or maybe right at the bedside, mm-hmm. some family member will always say to me, is there any chance we could ever meet the person that gets dad's heart? Yeah. Oh my so gosh. that's just another important, I just want to underscore this, it's a huge and important part of our work, and that is donor family services and support, helping families understand the magnitude and the power of the gift of life that they have provided. Mm-hmm. And they don't initially get the name and address of who gets the gift, but they get a very good description mm-hmm. of the life circumstance of the people that get those organs. Mm-hmm. I know when I have been involved in some of the donations, even the yeah. staff would get, um, you would get specifics, but we'd be like, the, the lungs were used, yeah. the kidneys were used. So you were right. able to feel like, because it's not easy to be a nurse in, in the situation as well, when you have to deal with it, it's hard for some people. Mm-hmm. So to get the letter back saying, like, we were able to use all of these did help when you were like, okay, well, you know, I feel like I did something good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you helped a, a family 
you know, that, he, that either made a decision or supported their loved one's decision to donate right. their, their own organs at the time of their death. I will tell you, I'll give you another quick stat here. Um, in the United States, today there are 156 million people over the age of 18 who have a, a designated status to donate their organs at the time of their wow. death. Wow. So that's almost 60% of the over 18 population in the United States. So what does that mean? That means that more than half of people that are coming into hospitals have some sort of a health directive in their wallet or purse Mm -hmm. that they want to donate their organs at the time of their death. So again, as we talked about earlier, it has no bearing on what a doctor in the emergency room does Mm -hmm. or a doctor on the ICU does or a nurse does for them or a respiratory therapist. But it, but it should, it should remind us that we have an obligation to be aware of that. And yes. the reason I say that is that there are, um, it is important that ICUs, uh, maintain the option for donation for families. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. Uh, blood pressure, right? The reason that organs are viable and safe, even in somebody with a profound brain injury, is that there's blood and oxygen passing through them at all times during their hospital admission. Their kidneys and their liver are being perfused by the ventilator uh, and getting blood and oxygen, and that's what makes the organs viable mm-hmm. because they've got a blood pressure probably supported with some kind of medication. Uh, right. If at some point in the course of the, of the admission uh, the blood pressure drips or they're not tr- uh, treating the blood pressure, uh, there may be organ damage. And so part of the, of the education and the advocacy that we do with the hospital teams, and it's a big part of the work that I do with advocacy and education, mm-hmm. is to, even before a family is approached about organ donation, please preserve the option for this family. Mm-hmm. Don't let the patient drift in their care plan, because if we get to a point where you have to talk to the family about having a difficult conversation, and mom looks at you, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Smith, and says, we'd like to donate dad's organ, and then we get in and take a look at his chart and find that his blood pressure has been very low for a period yeah. of time, mm-hmm. hours, there's yeah. probably going to be damage on those organs that makes donation impossible. Mm-hmm. So all we, we do is, again, it, it doesn't, it, it is, we're not asking the teams to be aware that a patient is quote-unquote registered. What we're asking is the good ICU-centered care that you would otherwise provide to this patient is going to keep that option available for mm-hmm. families. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That, that makes sense. Yeah. No, it does. It does. Yeah. So... You know, we, we do talk about on the episode about how, you know, the process of actually bringing them into the operating room and, and you know, there's different teams that come in. We, we talk about all that. Can we go over what support you give the families after the donation has been done? Of course. So, again, this gets back to donor family services or aftercare, as we call it. So when a family makes the decision to donate, they say goodbye to their loved one, the team travels to the operating room, the organs are recovered. By the way, I just want to add it here. Um, we've gotten away from using the term harvest. Yeah. You know that term? <laughs> when I we started, that's how we were referring to them. Yeah, I would, I would, I would be grateful to both of you for um, asking people to use the word recover. Yeah. Okay. Reco- we Much recover, more we positive. We don't harvest. Yes. So uh, once the once the teams travel to the OR, um, the family leaves the hospital. They will immediately once the recovery of organs takes place. 
someone in that family who's a designated to receive information is going to get a call from one of my colleagues. It's either going to be me or somebody that I work with closely. Tell them that we successfully recovered their dads or their moms or their sons and fill in the blank, the organs that were recovered. And they are in route or in process of being transplanted uh, or or already have been transplanted if, you know, if an overnight has taken place in between. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they get a verbal report from us right away. Those are emotional phone calls. I I I bet bet they are. when I support a family, when I've conducted the conversation, and for us, it's who conducts the conversation with the family, so there's some familiarity. Mm-hmm. Right. We get right. to make Continue. that call. We get to make that call after they after they exit the OR, and after we know that that there's some at least early indication that transplants are going to take place. Mm-hmm. One, one of my uh, team or me uh, get to make a call to you know to a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, somebody in the family. And those phone calls are as emotional as you can imagine they are. When you say your dad's heart was recovered, it was transplanted, the patient's doing well initially, you know, postoperatively. Mm-hmm. You get, I'm not going to lie, I'm getting a little emotional with you just talking about <laughs> it. You get such, <laughs> such an emotional response because, of course, the family's gone home, they're thinking about this, they know that their, their loved one is in the process of of right. making this gift, this is happening, these doctors are doing their work, these instruments of sort of miracles, the transplant doctors that do all this work, mm-hmm. it's all happening, and then the phone rings, and they find out that it did happen, mm-hmm. and it's it's enormous, it's absolutely enormous. So so that settles in, and we, we conduct that conversation. By the way, I just want to add, I always ask families for a few words um about their, the hospital people that took care of them, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory people, just, you know, anything, their observations and expression of thanks, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I like to make sure the people on the IC, work in the ICUs, know that these families will never forget them, yeah. that they appreciate, families appreciate the kindness, the skill, and the compassion that allowed them to come to the hospital, we know you did everything that you could. Mm-hmm. You were wonderfully compassionate. You told us that you couldn't save his life. We donated these organs. We saved, we helped save lives. Like all this came from this wonderful sort of family centered care that you provided. Yes. So mm-hmm. I always ask families for that. And I make sure, uh, I just want you guys to know this. It's, I think it's one of the most important parts of my work, just me personally, is going back and finding a nurse or a doctor especially the young providers who are new at this, to say, hey, here's what happened as a result of your work. Mm -hmm. And thank you. And so the next time we we get together and do this, the nurse or the doctor says, hey, we've got to be good at this because this is important and it's worthwhile. Yeah. Right. So um, Trying to change the image a little bit. So then, just quickly, uh, about six weeks after the donation takes place, that donor family will get a letter from us, from New England Donor Services. Mm-hmm. And it is, a, first and foremost, an expression, an expression of sympathy to the family on their loss mm-hmm. and thanking them for making this brave decision to donate organs or for, for supporting their loved one's own decision to be a donor. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then they get, they get more detail about the gifts and the recipients. And then they learn it's a gentleman in his 40s mm-hmm. who's a teacher who's been able to go back to work. And in yes. that six-week interval, we, New England Donor Services, 
has reached out to the transplant program where that transplant took place, Mm -hmm. and we've asked for an expression of appreciation from the recipient that gets incorporated into the letter that gets... Oh, so they're able to put it in their own words, how they feel about what they got. So it goes something like this. And again, imagine if you're a family member getting a letter, it reads and it says, a gentleman in his 40s who's a teacher, he's a fireman, it's a woman in her 30s or 50s or 60s who uh, spends time with her grandkids, and she wanted you to know that she's grateful for the gift, she prays for your family every single day, and just something like that. Like, mm-hmm. So a family knows that they're remembered and that the gift meant something, and it it is it is considered sacred you know, by the recipient. So mm-hmm. that's a big part of our work as well, is to make those really human connections. And, and then in time, as we have all seen again on TV, uh, on Good Morning America or any of the news shows, that when both sides, the recipient and the donor family, expressed an interest in meeting each other, we will help organize that as well. I would be a mess. I would be a mess watching that. Yeah. Yeah. And those meetings are uh, some of the most emotional human moments you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Yes. And I, I mean, we went to, um, yeah. Yeah. I went to a presentation that the donor services had to kind of give us a feel for the facility. And I can't believe yeah. beyond the respect, the way the yeah. uh, donors are handled and everything. It's amazing. And they have gardens and they have, sayings on the walls it was it was such a moving experience going there and they showed a video of a recipient um of a heart meeting the mother of the donor and yeah. i mean you had to wipe me off the floor forget it yeah it, it's <laughs> it's very emotional it's like i've used the term a couple of times not to, to repeat it's the human it's the human aspect the human element of the work that we do that that is sustaining in 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 very difficult situations because again uh, you know, people, friends of mine, family ask me all the time, how can you be around death every day? Like, well, you know, you're around death all the time. And the answer is, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I'm around good people too that make these decisions and, and give others life and create right. a legacy. Um, you mentioned earlier, I wanted to spend a minute here to talk about something that is been very, is, is new in my practice. And then when I say new, I mean new in the last five or six years and troubling and sad in every way possible. And it's the drug overdoses that are taking place in our culture right now. You know, we were all coronavirus these days, but uh, the incidence of young people, primarily young people, dying of drug overdoses, heroin and fentanyl, Mm -hmm. is shocking. Yes, yes it is. And we see it in the field because we're doing the donations from them or uh, or the other, you know, yes, it's amazing. It's scary. Mm-hmm. It's scary. It's, it's frightening. And so, you know, years ago when I first heard, and I've been doing this for 15 years now, I'm in my 15th year with the donation services. When I first joined the organization, the typical conversation that we'd be having would, would be something like this. A 62-year-old man comes to Mass General having had a stroke. He's brought in. He's intubated. He's put on the neuro ICU. His brain injury is so profound that he's brain dead. And you're talking to a wife and an adult, an adult child. Mm-hmm. That's who you're talking to. Um, today, mm-hmm. the more common scenario is a 19-year-old has come to Mass General after overdosing on heroin and fentanyl, mm-hmm. and I'm meeting with his 36-year-old 
mother mm-hmm. and father. Oh, man. And the, and the 18-year-old has a two-year-old that he's leaving behind. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that is, that is the more common family dynamic that we're seeing nowadays. And it's really fundamentally changed our practice. I also feel, though, um, the donation for people who have overdosed is some way for the family to have closure. Like, they don't feel like it was, well, it was just an overdose. It was such a waste. At least I was able to donate, or at least I was able to help somebody else through this because it's such a, like, a, a crazy way to go. Yeah. Any you death know? is, re- any death is regrettable, and especially acu- acutely a young person who gives yes. up their life, you know, to a, to a drug overdose or, or anything. And then, mm-hmm. you know, death is, death is never up. And I please accept this comment in the way it's intended. Mm-hmm. But there is some logic in my mind when I go to the neuro ICU and it's a 69 year old that's had a stroke. Yes. I say to myself, well, this is sad. Yeah. This is very yes. sad. A family but it was, a, it was a natural death. event. Like 69 had a stroke, and so okay, I can I can organize that in my mind. I right. still to this day cannot organize an 18 or 19 year old who's no. dying on one of our ICUs from a drug overdose. And I yet agree. we we must still carry on and do our work for the sake yep. of that family, for the sake yep. of the people that are waiting on the transplant waiting list. Yes. Um, I do want to say that um, I feel very privileged to work in this way at Mass General Hospital. Um, MGH strives to really be the best at everything they do in every manner of patient care, family care, research, education, you know, Mm -hmm. education of all of our providers, and no less in the world of organ donation and transplant. They allow my teams, my colleagues, and me unfettered access to the hospital, to the teams, to create education and awareness so raise, rise the tide, raise the tide so that we're doing a good job for families. Mm-hmm. I have nightmares. I wake up in cold sweats um, that families would ask a provider, an MD or a nurse, we want to donate our dad's organs, and I am not aware of that patient at Mass General. Mm-hmm. That, that's my nightmare because yes. I feel like yes. that, that means the system is broken and we weren't ready for that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, just through you know, perseverance and a commitment from the hospital and good people on both sides of the equation, the donation team and the hospital team, um, that almost never happens. Mm-hmm. Um, Excellent. We are, Excellent. we are, we are typically ready. Uh, the rates, I'm very proud of what I'm about to tell you again. There's nothing good about somebody dying. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, we study the rates at which families say yes when they are asked the donation question. Across mm-hmm. the United States, about six out of ten families say yes when they are asked that question. So what that means is that, you know, using the old term consent, the consent rate for organ donation is about 60%. It may waver a percent up or down uh, mm-hmm. year in and year mm-hmm. out. At the MGH, we have sustained rates, donor rates of 80% and wow. higher year after wow. year. Wow. I'm proud of that because yeah. it means yeah, you should be. that's pretty good. Really, and we're serving our family in an extraordinarily good way. And so yes. I'm, I'm grateful. And, you know, and people are getting transplants that they need and families are, are grateful that they can help. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
So um, I have, I'm going I have to probably in the hospital. I can. You really do. You really do because we've really done some of them. They're not all that great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to thank you so much for your time, and I'm hoping that our listeners can clear up or pass it on to other people who may come up with some of these. Like, oh, they're going to let me die because I'm young. Or, I appreciate all the information you've given us. Yes, um, sorry for all the glitches and the technical that we went through. <laughs> Not at all. Um, we, we have to we have to persevere. Could I just um, give you some resources at the end of the? At absolutely. The end of the I was going to say that. Like, like how can people register? How can people contact you? Yes. Sure. Give us all the thank, information thank, you have. Thank you very much for letting me do this. So just just very quickly, number mm-hmm. one, New England Donor Services is nedsneds.org. That's our website. It's chock okay. full of information about organ and tissue donation. Hey, something we didn't have a chance to get into tonight, equally important, and maybe for another podcast, <laughs> corneas, blood vessels. Tendons. We talk about that on yeah. the actual part of this. Yeah. That it's just her and I. We talk about yeah. um, bones and tissues and eyes and How face right. transplants and arms and hands. And, yeah. Meaningful gifts, mm-hmm. gifts that families want to make. If somebody cannot be a donor of organs for one reason or another, perhaps they can be a donor of tissue and and equally, we should be in position and ready for that, and we are. I want mm-hmm. everybody to know that. So, NEDF.org, chock full of information. Uh, the national, the federal government runs organ donor, that's all one word, organdonor.gov. Okay. Okay. That is a great website, uh, chock full of information. If somebody wants to register to be an organ donor, and remember, not everybody has a driver's license. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so you don't have to have a driver's license to be a registered donor. You can go to registerme, all one word, registerme.org. Okay. okay. And we're going to put all these yeah, websites we'll on our um, social sure. media as well. And then the last one that i like everybody to know about is donatelifeamerica.org. Again, all one word, donatelifeamerica.org. Mm-hmm. And I'll just call to your attention as we wrap up here, April is National Donate Life Month. Now, given the current national situation (laughs) worldwide health crisis some of the in-person activities that we would typically do in april to create awareness around organ donation the importance of it getting people to register holding registration drives unfortunately those are not going to be able to take place this year but at donatelifeamerica.org people can see what april is all about what we typically do in the month of april to create awareness get the word out um and I will tell you, it, it's moving the needle. Laura and Nicole, I'll leave you with this thought. Many more families nowadays initiate the discussion with the medical teams on the island wow. about donating their loved ones to organs. When I first joined the donation services team 15 years ago, it, it was almost never that a family would initiate. Right. And now I can tell you, I, I don't know what the actual data is today, but it's a high percentage of families. I think that's that awesome. Discussion which is a wonderful, kind gesture. Mm -hmm. And it means that the awareness and whatever we're doing in our, in the public consciousness, hopefully is, is it's working, help helping. It's working. It's working. Like I said, I've never had anything but a wonderful experience with uh, donation services at the hospital. They, they're always wonderful. They're always professional. They're always respectful. Mm -hmm. 
beyond the physicians, beyond the nurses, they are utmost helpful and respectful. So I, I can't say enough about the organization you work for. They're fantastic. Yeah. I, I want to just put one final plug in for my colleagues. <laughs> these are, these, these are uh, people are heroic. So yes, uh, yes, right they now, are. I am not at Mass General on a day in and day out basis because of the restrictions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there is a certain element of my, of, of my colleagues who are still marching into, right through the front doors of every hospital every single day doing yep. the work right at the bedside, on the ICU, in the OR, meeting with families. God love them for that. They're the, they're the heroes of our organization. They're as brave as brave can be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. And again, I can't thank you enough for coming on mm-hmm. and uh, speaking with us because I think this will absolutely help a lot of families. Yeah. Thanks. And I thank both of you for the work that you do in the hospitals where you work, given what's going on in our world right now. Well, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. All right, Kevin, thank I'm going to have a T-shirt for you for all the glitches. I know. And, um, thank again, you. thank you for everything, and it was nice speaking with you. Fantastic. Thanks for letting me do this. Really, really appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. 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 Like, subscribe, rate, and review the Scissors and Scrubs podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scissors and Scrubs, and email us any of your stories or thoughts to scissorsandscrubs at gmail.com.